0: everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of the Full Stop Podcast. This is a podcast that's available to all of our Patreon supporters and then eventually, like after a month, everyone else. But if you want to get on board with the unstoppable literary force that is Full Stop and help us to continue to pay our writers, you should definitely help support us at patreon.com backslash fullstopmag. Not only do you get this podcast, but you get a monthly exclusive newsletter and a bunch of other goodies. So please help us. Okay, enough with the desperation, and now on with the show. This month, I'm speaking with author Shavisa Woods. Her most recent book is 100 Times, which is comprised of 100 personal stories of sexism, harassment, discrimination, and assault. Earlier this summer for Full Stop, She wrote the essay "Hating Valerie Solanas and Loving Violent Men," about how Valerie Solanas, the author of the Scum Manifesto, is still most well known for shooting Andy Warhol—not, you know, fatally. Instead of her works, male artists, on the other hand, are given a pass for their violent and murderous acts. Shavisa, welcome to the podcast. Visa, thank you so
1: much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So, your essay about Valerie Solanas was really interesting for a bunch of reasons. Obviously, it tied into your book but also is, is like incredibly timely, just in terms of, of basically how we're reassessing, I don't know, the past uh, 2000 years of popular conception of kind of male power and, and the way that their violence kind of gets laundered through basically the context of their other acts, we just kind of sweep it under the rug. Maybe we could just start with you talking a little bit about Valerie Solana's in the, in the popular conception, how do we think of Valerie Solanas if you were just coming at it from basically, this is what I glean from popular culture?
2: I think that we think of Valerie Solanas as a violent madwoman, and I think that the Scum Manifesto is talked about in the mainstream as if it were violent ravings of a lunatic that are sort of nonsensical and should be swept aside, and of course are just, the, the ideas found in it are too disturbing to take seriously in any way. It's also, um, she's also spoken about, and I always was disturbed, that the Scum Manifesto has often been spoken about as if she meant every word of it to be taken at face value, that it's just a man-hating text, and she literally means every, every word of it, and it's sort of coming just from the, the chaos of her mind. Um, and I think in the essay, I even talked about the recent portrayal of Valerie Solanas in American Horror Story by Lena Dunham. And they fictionalized her story and made her a psychotic serial killer. So I think that was pretty indicative of the larger cultural conception of her as a person.
1: Was she even central to the plot or was there's this kind of like this extraneous time marker that they wanted to say, here's this kind of edgy, unhinged woman?
2: Yeah, it was a flashback. There was a character in the show Cult that started reading the Scum Manifesto and was, you know, having issues with the male leadership of the cult because she had sort of, you know, gone into this Valerie Solanas mindset. So then they were flashing back to who Valerie Solanus was. And it was funny and fun and interesting in a way. And they created this whole different narrative for her. And I wasn't horribly offended by it, but I did sit back and I said, hmm, like this is really indicative of the way that, you know, people have shaped her as sort of a caricature. And Lena Dunham played her as just this really unhinged, like frumpy lesbian who sort of just wanted to kill, not even men anymore. Now it was all straight people. So straight couples of men and women who were like necking in, you know, in, on, on make out points and stuff. She just wants to kill them to start, this revolution. But then, you know, it never actually came to light that Valerie Solanus and her cult were the ones doing these murders. It was pinned on a different serial killer. So yeah, it was a weird side plot. But the whole point was sort of to make Valerie Solanus look even crazier than she was. And unfortunately, I think for some of the younger people watching, some of them actually believed that was her true story, which of course it is not.
1: Right. All of these things kind of get wrapped up and basically we, we have like very little control over how the portrayal actually deviates from the historical event or who this person was. And, and especially when like you take somebody, you just grab them completely out of their context and throw them into another one. What originally drew you to Valerie Solanis and, and how does kind of her portrayals in the popular conception stack up against her actual work?
2: Well, I I read The Scum Manifesto, I think, for the first time when I was 20 or 21. And I also was, you know, when I first moved to New York, I was part of this downtown art scene. And my mentor, who recently passed away, um, was Steve Cannon. And he was actually, his first book was published by the same publisher that published The Scum Manifesto by Gerodius. Maurice Gerodius um, an Olympia Press. And so I, I got to hang out in sort of a milieu of people who knew her or knew of her or knew people who knew her pretty well. Um, in New York, her legacy is still very present and she's known. So I got to know the Scum Manifesto and her work and the politics of the area and the history of the time really close up. And then I know that when I talked to people who were in the Midwest or who, you know, who just weren't connected to the you know, very niche New York downtown art scene, there was a really skewed um, understanding of what her work was and what she was doing. And I, I was pretty interested in the Scum Manifesto for many years. Actually, this is a funny story. Mm-hmm. When I was in my mid-20s, a female friend of, I, of mine who also loved the Scum Manifesto um, Sabrina Chap and I decided to do a night that was like Scum Manifesto themed, where we were going to have different female artists performing like a variety show. And in between, we read the Scum Manifesto in different characters. And this was done at a place called Good Black- Bye Blue Monday in Brooklyn. Oh,
1: yeah.
2: Have you heard of Good Bye Blue Monday? It's pretty oh, yeah.
1: I'm, yeah. <laughs> I, I grew up in Queens. So this is territory I'm familiar with. <laughs>
2: Yeah, and it was also started by a man who um, was, you know, from New Orleans and creating a really New Orleans vibe and scene there. And how good Bly- by Blue Monday worked is there were just performances all throughout the day, and we like booked the show for a couple hours in the evening, so there was like a band playing before us, and a lot of times people just stay from show to show. You don't really have to pay extra to see another show. Um, so our audience had come in, and the audience that was there, it was just like a regular straight audience. I mean, like heterosexual audience for the band before, and they were kind of hip, cool, artsy types, and they were sitting in the front row, and our audience was behind them. And they were (laughs) like, well, we're going to stay for this show. And I got up on stage, and I just started reading the first page of the Scum Manifesto, and I saw the faces of like the men and women, and a lot of them who were couples sitting in the front row just changed. They paled. And all of a sudden, the whole front row cleared out. They just got up and left in a hurry. And then all of like the lesbians and queers and like ra- and the feminists who were like there for my show like came to the front and sat down and started sort of laughing, not taking the text as seriously as the straight people did. And I remember thinking, wow, this really has a lot of power. If this can still clear a room of pretty lefty artists in like 2007 or whatever it was.
1: Right. And and it's it's not as if, you know, a lot of the stuff in the Scum Manifesto doesn't have a total truth right beneath it. It's just like the tone and the extremism is, you know, kind of lathered on, right? Like overthrowing the government, eliminating the money system, destroying the male sex. Like these are, some would argue, admirable goals.
2: They're admirable goals. And she's also saying it in this very, at the time, like modernized, but now it's a very dated vernacular you know, it sort of reads like if the catcher in the rye <laughs> were like just a little bit more hip and in this, you know, in the 60s. I mean, the first line of the Scum Manifesto is society at its best being an utter bore. You know, it's very right. tongue in cheek. Right. And if you don't get it, and most people don't, which I'm very shocked by, she wasn't going to explain it to you.
1: Mm-hmm. As you explain in the essay, she's kind of doing this, like, Freud parody, right? Like, almost kind of line by line, I'm just going to, like, take everything he said and just invert it. And then, you know, if you go back and, like, read Freud, like, it's just as insane. And yet it's taken, you know, in a lot of sectors still so extremely seriously. You know, why is that?
2: (laughs) Well, it's interesting. I mean, Freud had a huge impact on psychology and the way that we looked at, you know, human nature and the way that we built our social systems and even has an impact to this day. I mean, I was taught Freud intensely in high school during my high school psychology class. He was even more popular at the time that Valerie Solanis was alive and writing The Scum Manifesto. And it's really interesting to me to see, to, so I put in the article, I put some of her lines and his his text side by side, and it is an almost line by line rewrite in certain places. I mean, for instance, Freud talked about women having penis envy, and then in the Scum Manifesto, of course, Valerie Solana says maybe men have pussy envy. And what's happened now, um, when it's being read in this day and age, is people are projecting our ideals and our sort of leftist politics back onto her incorrectly and thinking, oh, this is a gender essentialist reading. This is a turf reading. She thinks like pussy, you know, defines right. being a woman. But she actually was just parroting and mocking something that was absurd and taken at face value by the mainstream, which was that like women are insane because we have like ovaries and vaginas. That's what Freud was saying. That having ovaries and vaginas and hormones defines you as a woman and also makes you very cognitively different than people with penises. So she rewrote all of the things that he said, but turned it and directed it toward men. And it was like, maybe maybe men are defined by their penises and maybe it makes them insane. How about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, yes. <laughs>
2: That's what it was.
1: Totally. I mean, you yeah. I mean, you you know, you think of who is kind of like at the leading edge or considered the prominent literary figures of the time, and you have somebody, you know, you mentioned Mailer and how he basically, I mean, shows kind of where his head was at, that like the only person he could think of as a female author was like Virginia Woolf, and that was it. And he was like, yeah, you know, I can't read female authors.
2: Right, so Norman Mailer um, is the... F- I go through in the essay, I talk about the double standard that we have, right, where all these men got to do wildly sexist things, actually commit violence and murder against women. And then Norman Mailer, I think, is is the male Valerie Solanis. He wrote crazily sexist and violent texts about women, and he also attempted to kill his wife. At a party in public and then spoke up. And then the next day went on television speaking about the knife as a symbol of manhood, saying that men have to dominate women. And if they have to, if they have to, they must, they can do so violently if needed. And that's okay. And, you know, after that, he went on to win what Pulitzer Prizes (laughs) and National Book Awards and Distinguished Contributions to American Letters and is still spoken about as a brilliant writer and thinker.
1: So, I mean, it's, it's like patently obvious, like why we give men this pass, but like, what is it about the brutal acts that like a woman commits that is like so definitive in, in kind of our, the way, you know, basically we can't even look past what they've done to actually see the work that they've created. Right. Because no one's arguing that people who commit violent acts shouldn't, basically have their work scrutinized and looked at but obviously it has to be done in the context of some of the things they did and with women especially with someone like Valerie Solanas it just completely obscures what you know their creative output is.
2: Right so in this essay I actually didn't tell anyone how they should respond to this or what they should do with it because I don't always know. I'm not saying that because Charles Bukowski is on video beating his girlfriend and that many women claimed that he was physically abusive, that his poetry is worthless. And I'm not necessarily saying that because William Burroughs killed his wife that Naked Lunch should not be read. What I am trying to say, and I think is important, is to realize that there is a huge double standard and that um, unconscious bias is insidious. And I think this article, a lot of people read it and I've had a lot of men tell me that they read it, and it's one of the first times that their mind was actually changed, and that they just thought about how they felt about Valerie Solanas versus how they feel about Norman Mailer. And the feeling is just different, and they don't know why. Mm-hmm. why and I don't necessarily know why. Like, it, it would take me probably a year to break it down, because I would have to name every single thing that happens in this culture from the time a person is born that tells them that men are allowed to make violent mistakes and can still be celebrated as intellectuals and artists, and women are not.
1: Right. And and just for the sake of the podcast, in terms of people who might be wanting to check out the article after, maybe you could just flesh out a little bit who Valerie Solanus was in terms of, you know, the, where she came from and her life's work, as opposed to kind of, you know, what she's known for.
2: Yeah, so Valerie Solanas was a person, you know, she was friends with Andy Warhol. She was an artist and writer and intellectual who was very active in the downtown art scene. She was actually, grew up in a very troubled home. She was from a poor family and she was a victim of incest. She said she was raped by her father repeatedly and because this caused so much strife in the family, she was then sent to live with her grandparents. And then her grandfather raped her. Um, And then she ran away from home as a teenager and moved to downtown New York City and became a sex worker to get by for a little while and also an artist. And this wasn't uncommon. She started hanging out with Andy Warhol um, and participating in the factory scene. And Basquiat had a not so dissimilar story to Valerie Solanas, also like a homeless kid, a sex worker who became a famous artist because he was taken in by Andy Warhol. But Valerie Solanas, of course, wasn't cute man. She was a lesbian and Andy Warhol and her were sort of, I guess nowadays you would call it frenemies to the max. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they had a very troubled relationship where he put her in a few of his films, but then she always said that he was putting her down in public. She felt like he treated men and women very differently, which I don't doubt is true. Um that
1: seems to par (laughs) par from you know the course of his life. (laughs)
2: And, yeah, she felt that he didn't give her the respect that he gave male artists, even though she thought she was as good as a lot of the artists in his my And eventually, you know, and eventually she gave him one of her plays that he he had a lot of money and he said he might produce it. And she famously gave him what she said was the only manuscript, because back in those days, you know, you type it out on a typewriter and there's one paper copy. And he and she kept checking in with him and asking if he had read it and if he wanted to produce it and if he didn't to give it back to her so she could shop it around. And he told her that he had lost it. And this was the catalyst for the shooting. And I heard stories that days before she came in with I don't remember what it was. I think it was a snake or some kind of wild animal and just told him. I'm going to shoot you. And he said, well, then shoot me. And then she came back a couple days later and she shot him, which I do not condone. It's horrible. Mm -hmm. But also, I noted in this, she didn't kill him. Um, He died 20 years later. He had health complications all of his life because of the injury. But ultimately, he died from different types of complications, probably related to his speed addiction. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people still talk about it as if she killed Andy Warhol, which is not true she was charged, you know, with attempted manslaughter, and she was put in jail at first, and then she was assessed um, to have been suffering from schizophrenia. This is so sad to me, because, you know, a lot of what she was parroting was Freud saying that suggesting that women should perhaps have to undergo hysterectomies, especially lesbians, needed to undergo hysterectomies in order to to be psychologically corrected and become like straight women, normal, straight women again. And after she shot Andy Warhol, she went to a psychiatric hospital and she was put under a non I can't even talk about this. It's really yeah. upsetting. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's she, she, so feel. so that she had an enforced hysterectomy. They removed, you know, that they, they gave her a hysterectomy against her will um, in the hospital, which is and electroshock therapy, which is just horrible. And then she was let out and then she was you know, homeless and sort of disappeared and never wrote again. And that's who she is. And, you know, I just lay out all of these details in my in this essay. It's called Hating Valerie Solanus and Loving Violent Men. And then I contrast it to so many other famous male writers and artists who have done much worse than what she did and were treated much better throughout their entire lives and posthumously.
1: And and even you know would make light of it or, or or you know write about it years later and say you know oh that was kind of a mistake um, I guess you know history would frown poorly upon that but you know I'm too great and I'm I'm too esteemed for this to actually catch up with me
2: yeah I mean Norman Mailer was really the glaring example and the and the final example but there was also Michael Alleg who murdered his friend who was. They were both party kids, and Michael Alec, if you don't know, was like the rave kid that was portrayed in the film Party Monster, played by Macaulay Culkin, and it was that famous rave murder in the 90s, and he killed his friend and cut him up and threw him into the Hudson River in pieces, and he's out of jail now, and he's a party promoter in New York City, and I don't know if he's doing really well or not, but I do know that I attended a film screening... And I didn't know he was in it a few years ago, but I found out he was in this indie film with a lot of other artists who I knew. And he was being very celebrated at the screening and people were like, oh, I think he's going to come. Can you believe Michael Alec's in it? And he's like famous for killing his friend and also having been a popular party promoter. But in the movie that I watched, this like indie film called Vamp Bikers, Michael Alec acted out just after being released from prison for killing someone and cutting them up. He acted out slowly killing someone in this movie. Right. Very similar, you know, and this was being celebrated and thought of as sort of funny. And I think this is really sick. Other examples from the book, of course, were Charles Bukowski and then Pablo Neruda wrote about raping a servant while he was on a diplomatic visit to another country. And I believe it in, in 1970. For it was published in his memoirs, I Confess That I Have Lived. And he wrote very plainly about raping a servant in a place where there was a caste system in the 60s. And he is a a very esteemed diplomatic guest who's very rich. And he raped a woman and he wrote about it and was like, she was right to disdain me. But I couldn't help myself, sort of, you know. And he, of course, is very celebrated
1: yeah, and celebrated, I think, at that time, he's writing about it then, that he's doing uh, diplomatic missions for, like, the Allende administration. He's, you know, well-loved well, well loved in, in lefty circles. You know, it's not as if he's working on behalf of, of some uh, dictator in these, in these moments.
2: No, I'm just saying there's a vast power dynamic between a servant of a low caste and Pablo Neruda, who's visiting, and she's yeah. actually emptying his latrine, and he raped her and wrote about it quite matter-of-factly, you know, mm-hmm. in a memoir called I Confess I Have Lived, as if this is living life, raping servants, yeah, that's how it goes.
1: So, I mean, will there ever, obviously you don't reach any conclusions in your piece, but obviously, like, even beyond films like I Shot Andy Warhol, like, a Valerie Solanas resuscitation, or at least, like, a reassessment is, is, like, very much needed outside of the context of this one act. Um, will these men kind of ever get their due and and actually have these acts elevated to the level and, and importance that they should be to add context to their work and their lives? Or will they just skate by because we've just been implicated for so long? It's not as if we haven't known about these things.
2: It's my hope that we will start to view sexism as bigotry in the way that we view other bigotries as unacceptable and bigotry and not just something that is sort of natural to human nature and inescapable and that we will start to hold men accountable in the same way that we hold men accountable in some cases and in some cases to allow ourselves to view women as whole equal intellectual creatures Mm -hmm. yeah yeah don't know (laughs) what else to say about that
1: (laughs) moving just away from the essay that you were for full stop obviously you have this new book that you're like crisscrossing the country promoting and you're all over the place do you do you want to just talk a little bit about what kind of was the impetus for the book you wrote and, and you know obviously dealing with much of, many of the same themes that, that were brought up in the essay
2: sure so my re- most recent book is 100 times a memoir of sexism And typically, I'm a fiction author. This is my first nonfiction book and probably my last for a very long time. The book is 100 Vignettes. They're just written as in-scene chapters that depict instances of sexist discrimination, sexual assault, sexist violence, and rape that I have personally experienced beginning at age five to the present day. And I wrote this book to try to make it clear that sexism isn't just something that impacts women one or two times in their life, but it's something that has a cumulative impact constantly in every sphere of society throughout our entire lives.
1: Mm -hmm. What was the genesis of this book? Was this something that you had just begun cataloging or something that you decided, this is my step into nonfiction?
2: This is something that I started thinking about writing probably 10 years ago. And I actually, as sort of a mindfulness technique, wrote down a log in my mid-20s because I was experiencing so much sexual harassment, particularly at that time street harassment, that I think it was starting to impact my mental health. And so I started writing down just what happened every day, um, every time I was sexually harassed or assaulted so that I could maybe look at it at the end of a week or two and see if it actually was happening to the extent that I was feeling it was happening or if I was emotionally overreacting. And so I had some of these logs and I I had all of this in my head. And when the Me Too movement started, I wanted to add my voice to the conversation and I wanted to expand the conversation of the Me Too movement beyond just talking about famous rich men and just talking about sexual assault and sexual harassment and also include discrimination and violence and and just sort of show what it looks like for everyday women who aren't dealing with the rich and famous but who are dealing with everyday men who are not necessarily super powerful but who for some reason still have a disparate amount of power in society
1: Right. And, and it seems as though people, at least, I don't know, in my sphere, um, have become a lot more comfortable kind of talking about, obviously, the, the more serious, well, I don't know how much anything could be more serious, but basically, um, from, from the violent and sexual assault to, to sexual harassment, and kind of documenting this either through Facebook or Instagram, or, or just kind of general shout outs, it seems, do, do, is that your general sense that people are becoming you know, through this larger movement becoming more comfortable talking about this, or was this something that was always discussed but just not not in public?
2: I mean, my experience has been that women have always talked about this with mm. each other. But when a man is present, we stop or sometimes are shut down. And I've been shut down by so many men, even men who I think really love me when trying to talk about this because they become deeply uncomfortable. And it's not necessarily something intentional that they do. They're not intentionally trying to shut us down, but sometimes they become so uncomfortable and they start trying to rationalize why this is happening and start getting protective rather than listening. Um, So I think a lot of women are just like, well, they can't handle hearing about it. They'll get uncomfortable or guilty or just start talking over us. But now there's this new moment where we are all saying this publicly. And I think a lot of men are shocked and we're saying it together and we're saying like, we're not going to let you look away from this anymore. And it's very different than it has been all my life. I mean, I'm just thinking of moments even when I'll like walk up to like a female bartender I know at like a local bar and, you know, rec- and who's, who I'm friendly with. And I started to recount a sexist assault that I experienced where some man like groped me while I was walking to the train. And then she's like, oh, yeah, you won't believe what happened to me yesterday. And then the day before. And then we just start, you know, listing all of these experiences and like sort of venting. And then a man came and he's like, what are you talking about? And, you know, we say, oh, we're just talking about this time we were sexually harassed, And then she was sexually assaulted twice this week. And then he'll be like, oh, my God, what? Well, what did you do? What could you have done differently? I wouldn't do that. You know, and then it just becomes it becomes uncomfortable. And he sort of starts lecturing us that actually happened. And then we just stopped talking and he kept talking. And then we had to sort of calm him down, let him know that we weren't blaming him for anything. And then so we just don't talk with men about it. That was sort of what was happening. It's hard to explain. For years and years, I think. And now we're finally like, no, you have to be quiet for a minute and listen. And we want you to really understand how often this happens to us and that, that we really need it to change.
1: Yeah. And not only that, but basically, how can men stop that behavior of basically and something I've certainly been guilty of many times in my life of just immediately personalizing it and being like, well, you know, I, I didn't do this or or I didn't know <laughs> I was doing that or, you know, I... you this is on you. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, so if, if somebody wants to check out your book, what's the best way they could do that?
2: I mean, the book is available in every bookstore in the US right now. It's put out by Seven Stories Press. I love my publisher. They publish a lot of good people. They're very lefty press. And it's also distributed by Penguin Random House. Seven Stories Press is now an imprint of Penguin Random House, so they can get it from any bookstore in the country, and it should probably be in stock in your local bookstore right now and in most libraries.
1: Awesome. And if somebody wanted to get into Valerie Solanis, they've read your essay or they've listened to this podcast, uh, what would you recommend they should do?
2: I think that going to the source is really the best thing. The Scum Manifesto, this is going to sound strange, but it's a fun read (laughs) And it's funny and it has a lot of cultural references in it. And it really also is indicative of a very flippant sort of art from that time. You know, it, it goes along with a lot of the factory artists and also in the spirit of like the coquettes and different parody artists. So I would say just read the Scum Manifesto itself to get a sense of her voice and what she was actually saying.
1: Awesome. And, and is that still in print or is it, you know, uh, Oh yeah. The Scum Manifesto
2: okay. is very much in print. I actually just bought a new print of it the other day. I wish I had it with me so I could see who the press is. Cause I forgot, but awesome. there's a new beautiful square, like pocketbook black matted print that you can get, or you can go get an old one, but it is definitely still in print and it's still being read quite widely. Awesome.
1: All right. Well, Chavista, um, thank you so much for uh, writing for Full Stop and being on the podcast and sharing, you know, your, your affinity and, and your, your perspective on, on Valerie Solanas. And kind of this is an artist that I think a lot of people, I mean, the, the article itself did extremely well. People were like clearly really, really interested in, uh, in kind of re encountering this person outside of what history has labeled them for doing.
2: Absolutely. And my hope with my book and my hope with the article is just to make people aware and start to question moments where you might have unconscious bias that is based in sexism, because I think the first step is really becoming aware of it. And I don't even think we're there yet. But hopefully we're starting to get there a little bit more than we were before.
1: Yeah, here's here's hoping. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we would love to have you on this again. And of course, publish you at full stop anytime.
2: Thank you so much.
1: All right, thanks for Visa. Mhm.
0: Thanks for listening to the Full Stop Podcast. As always, you can check Full Stop out at www.full-stop.net, which is updated with reviews, interviews, and essays every single day. And definitely help support what we do at patreon.com backslash fullstopmag. We want to thank Matt Orenstein for the music, and Samantha Kerr and Emily Sankowitz for engineering this month's episode. We'll see you next time.